0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, Bringing Theology to Life. Revelation chapter 18. So we are actually getting very close to the end of the book of Revelation. After this, we only have four more chapters left. So we have been looking really at the final eviction of evil from this world. It's almost complete when we get to Revelation chapter 18. And very shortly, the king will be coming back to take his rightful place on the throne. And as you can imagine, what a coronation that will be for this earth. But let's just pray before we go any further. Father, we ask now as we turn our hearts and our minds towards your wonderful word, that you will show us your truth, reveal your Son, show us your attributes more and more, Lord God, and make us more effective ambassadors for you in this world. In Jesus name and for his sake, we pray. Amen. We are doing chapter 18, which is the final destruction of Babylon. We've had chapter 17 and chapter 18 both deal with this issue of the overthrow of Babylon. We've talked quite a lot about it. This is basically the overthrow of Satan's kingdom on the Earth in this final period of history. He's been trying to build this for so long ever since the Tower of Babel, really. And in this final period of history, he gets his final three and a half years where the Lord has him, allows him, I should say, to do that and then very quickly though, almost in the same period of time, a day basically or less, we see its destruction and that is what we're looking at this morning. If you remember Babylon, we did the history, we went back to the Tower of Babel, we looked at the religious element of Babylon, we spoke about that, what it represents in the Bible, symbolized by that picture of the woman who rides the beast or the great harlot and this is the idea of false religion. And we talked about the fact that although there are thousands of spiritualities and religions and whatever it may be in the world, idols, the Bible really only presents it as being two. There is Messiah, redemption through the Messiah, and then everything else is Babylon. There is the way of life, there is the way of death, or we could say there is Jerusalem and there is Babylon. They are really the only two ways and now quite literally as we get to this final showdown, it is those two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, that will be standing at the end where everything goes down. I spoke, my view is that Babylon the Great, although it is representing these things, it is more than that at this time, it is also an actual city that it will be in operation during this period of history that will somehow be involved with the final government of the world at this time. So let's turn to chapter one and let's get reading. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So we see here another high-ranking angel, as you've probably been aware through this book now, we see the angelic mission of angels, the messengers throughout this book, announcing various things. And he is announcing now the final fall of Babylon. It says that the, the glory of this angel illumined the earth, and we believe that is a reflection, really, of the glory of God. This angel has obviously been in the presence of the Lord, getting his marching orders, I'd imagine, before he comes down to give this mission. You remember when Moses was up on the mountain and it says that his face shone when he came down from being in the presence of the glory of the Lord. I see it as being something similar here that we have going on. It says he cried out with a loud voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And it goes on to describe how when the city is finally destroyed, it will be so so desolate, it will only be a fit place for unclean spirits or demons. It says that the nations have drunk from her passion, from her immorality. Merchants, that's businessmen, have become rich from her. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now remember I've mentioned a few times, Revelation 17 and 18 are drawing upon four specific chapters in the Old Testament that deal with this subject of Babylon. Two of the main ones are Jeremiah 50 and Jeremiah 51. I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 50 now. I want you to notice the similar themes. This is where Revelation gets it from and I I want to do this for you. So, uh, Revelation is often considered a locked book. One of these things that we just cannot possibly understand. And as I hope I've made clear as we've been going through it, most of these things in Revelation are in fact drawn from the Old Testament. So it's not so much that we can't understand it, it's more that we're not proficient in our Old Testament to understand it and that is something I want to try and bridge with you. So let's, let me read Jeremiah 50 verses 5 to 9 and I want you to just notice these themes about what we've been reading in Revelation. So Jeremiah says, for neither Israel nor Judah has been forsaken by his God the Lord of hosts, although their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. So there's your command to flee. Come out of her, my people. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, intoxicating all the earth. The nations have drunk of her wine, and therefore the nations are going mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail over her, bring palm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We applied healing to Babylon but she was not healed forsake her and let us each go to our own country for her judgment has reached to heaven and towers to the very skies." Now if you're an astute student you probably picked up on a lot of themes there. Firstly the call to flee Babylon, the fact that it is listed as the time of the Lord's vengeance. This is the time we're reading about in Revelation. Babylon is described as having a golden cup. Do you remember last week we read about Babylon being described with a golden cup? Intoxicating the nations it said in Revelation says it also here in Jeremiah. And then we have that, even that phrase, Babylon has fallen. That comes from Jeremiah too. And then finally note the allusion to the Tower of Babel. Her judgment has reached to the heaven, her towers to the skies. That's an allusion to that story of the Tower of Babel where they built the the tower to try and reach up into the heavens. That's a theme that we get coming through, connecting Babylon. All of these things are connected throughout the Bible. And the result ultimately of this final destruction is that Babylon will be unfit for human habitation at this time and it seems to indicate that even into the beginning of the kingdom, Babylon is kept in a state unfit for human habitation as a witness or a testimony to these things. But I want to digress slightly and talk about that phrase, come out of her my people, a little bit now. Because this is what we see, a very important principle for us in the Bible, it's called the principle of separation and it runs throughout the entire scripture right from the beginning, in fact. The very third verse of the Bible introduces this to us. It says, then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Now whilst I fully believe this is a a description of the physical creation that God intended it to be at this time, it also is a theme that is picked up as an application throughout the whole Bible to do with the separation of light and darkness. Often as we move through the Bible we see darkness and light used as a way to talk about good and evil, as a way to talk about God's way or Satan's way, or we could say Jerusalem or Babylon. Psalm 18 verse 28, for you light my lamp and the Lord my God illumines my darkness. Isaiah 5:20: woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet And sweet for bitter. And ultimately this was the charge against Israel in those days, that they had actually become like the world. They had forfeited their special calling to be a separate called out people that would stand out against the world, testifying to a greater reality, a greater God and a greater future for all mankind. Instead, they had become like the world, the things that God was calling good, they were now calling evil, the things that the world and Satan was calling good, they were doing the same. This is the background actually, this whole theme here to Jesus' famous statements where he says, I am the light of the world. Most people know that statement, It's it's a very popular statement. Most people are not entirely sure what it means, except maybe in some sort of spiritual picture that God is kind of light in some way. And that's true in many ways, but it's drawing on this background. It's drawing on this principle of separation from the world. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me, you see the focus, he is the light but the application is to those who are following him, he will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Those who have Jesus will not walk in darkness or should not walk in darkness. John 12 46 he goes on, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And the point is, if you don't have Jesus, You are in darkness. That is the reality of this world. Like I said, there are really only two destinations. There is Jerusalem and there is Babylon at this point. Without Jesus, you remain in one of those destinations. Now we must not forget that the implications of what Jesus is teaching here are also given to us throughout the rest of the Bible. If you want to know what the best commentary you can read on the Gospels is, on the teachings of Jesus found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the best commentary you can read is the Epistles. That is a good way to think about the epistles. The apostles take what Jesus taught and they apply it for the church. And I want to read to you a a lengthy section now from Ephesians chapter 5, where I believe we see the Apostle Paul using these themes of light and darkness that go back to Jesus, that go back to Isaiah, that go back right to the book of Genesis, this principle of separation. And I want you to notice how he applies it to our lives and it does give us very definite instructions and implications of how we should live in this world as separate, called out people. Ephesians 5 verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Empty words is another way of saying empty promises. Now if you study many of the things that we're saying are coming from Babylon, the religions, the spiritualities, you'll notice much of the time they give very wonderful promises. But it's saying here, those people do not have ultimately the power to make those things come true in the eternal realm. Only God can do that. They are nothing but empty words. And because you follow those things, the wrath of God comes upon those people. And then look at verse seven, Ephesians five, verse seven, therefore do not be partakers with them. It's another way of saying, come out of her, my people, flee from Babylon, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Remember, it's only one source of light. Babylon, Satan, the actual name Satan means angel of light, the shining one in some ways. It's a counterfeit. This is the thing. Satan is very good at appearing as an angel of light with the sole purpose of making sure you end up in Babylon and not in Jerusalem, if I could put it like that. That's the idea Jesus is the only true light and we were in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord, we are to now walk in light of that reality as children of light, goes on in verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. If you want to know what you're supposed to be doing in life right now, take that verse right there. Really think about it, trying to learn. It almost suggests that there's not going to be something that's easy all the time. You try to learn, you must be diligent in striving after him in light of the reality that he just gave you, that you are a children of light, that you have moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've come from Babylon into Jerusalem, that is where your future lies, so why are you not walking in light of it? That's his point here. Do not, verse 11, participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead expose them you don't have to look very hard in this world to see that there are many dark things going on in this world all the time but for the Christian this is addressed to remember, not for those who are living in Babylon and loving it there, this is for the Christian. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds. Now that's an interesting word there, he could have just said in the evil deeds of darkness or something like that but he says unfruitful and the point being the reason that we are Christians, that we are to walk as children of light, is to bring fruit to the kingdom. We are to be producing fruit for God's kingdom in this world and therefore if we are spending our time in fact walking in the darkness again, going near the shadows, we will be unfruitful. It says we are in fact to expose them and how do we do that? Not by some self-righteous moral high ground that we take, we do that simply by living for Jesus, reflecting him. He is the one that has the moral high ground, the only one. He is the one with the authority, he's the one with the power and it is by living his word that we get to see these things exposed. Verse 12, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things will become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And I find that a fascinating statement here. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us who are here now, saved people. He says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Okay, so this is another exhortation. He wants us to walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And now he says, be careful though, how you walk, M- not as unwise men, but as wise. It's very easy to come to the Lord, become complacent in what we've been given, are the blessings that we have, even with the grace of God and how wonderful it is that we slip back into walking slowly, and we end up heading back towards the darkness. He says, not as unwise men, but as wise. Verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Again, that's another call and commission to the church to understand what it is to be an ambassador of Christ. Someone on this earth who represents that glorious kingdom of light that will one day fill the whole earth, but now it is here represented by those of us who are children of light, who are born again into that kingdom. That's the whole point point. and therefore this is quite a serious call that Paul is making here, that we are to represent that and we are to make the most of our time while we are here because in many ways things are getting darker. And then verse 17 he goes on, so then, do not be foolish, that's a strong word, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What is his point with this statement? Being drunk with wine is a good example of being controlled by something else. His point is to contrast that, we should be filled, the word there in Greek means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Therefore we do what the Spirit wants us to do, our lives are his, the Spirit will be the one that testifies and glorifies and points all things to the ultimate King, Jesus Christ, the one who will rule this kingdom of light and he will use us in that regard and therefore the fruits of darkness, anything else that would control us will only take away from that purpose and when we do that we've lost sight of the reality of what it actually is we are here to do. He says we filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. For me, you can't get a better explanation of what it means to be a separate and called out people that highlights the differences between Jerusalem and Babylon, light, darkness in these two kingdoms. And really there is only one king, there's the King Jesus Christ, but the kingdom of darkness has its king with a small k, if I could say that, through this age. This is what we've been studying in the book of Revelation. We need to understand this separation truth about Christ, about light, about darkness, and I believe even the physical creation is a testimony to this fact, that God separated the light from the darkness in some way, speaks to us of this truth. We should be careful how we walk, we need to be wise how we walk, come out of her, my people. Again, remember the background for that statement is Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah 51:45, the Lord says to Babylon, come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you save yourselves from the anger of the Lord. Exactly the same concept as Revelation. You see God does not want his people to be influenced by Babylon. By the system, by the religion, by the sensualities of that place. Now whilst this particular instruction in Revelation that we're reading I do believe is related to a time in the future, I believe to any believers at that that time anyway in the future who haven't taken the mark or the 144,000 maybe who are in Babylon for some reason, whatever it may be, he's basically saying get out quick, Babylon's about to be destroyed. And we've seen this many times in the Bible and I think even for us in the church age and for us personally as individuals every day, we can appreciate this principle. The call is to be separate, to be set apart, that's what being holy in that sense means, to be wise, to walk in the light. We actually spoke about this in depth a few weeks ago in our midweek study in Isaiah now because the themes cross over so beautifully as Isaiah and Jeremiah feed into what we're reading in Revelation. The principle of being set apart. In Isaiah, he warns the nation of Israel to stop making alliances with foreign nations. That's his whole point. They're not trusting in the Lord. Instead, they're going to the rich, the powerful nations of the world, trying to stop people attacking them by building alliances. And he says, stop doing that. It's the same thing, building relationships living in Babylon. In fact they even went to, to these nations to try and get support. I read a verse, I'm going to read it to you again in context now from 2 Corinthians 6, you, shou- you will all know this verse, part of it anyway, the first part probably. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? It's That same principle again there. What harmony has Christ with Beel? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then look at verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, like I shared on Wednesday, most people know this verse simply as an application to stop getting into relationships with people who are not believers because they don't share your worldview, they don't share your passion, they don't share all of the things that should be the most important to you. However, whilst that's an application, I like to make the point that's not the whole focus, it's not talking about that, it's talking about any particular relationship or influence. You will notice that this is given to us in the language of the temple. The language of the ministry and service, that was the centre of Israel, that's where everything happened, that's where everyone had to bring their sacrifice. That's where the priests would sing, that's where the priests would sacrifice on the altar. Ultimately, that's where the menorah was, the light of the world, the bread in the temple, right in the Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the, the blood had to be sprinkled on and that's where the Shekinah glory dwelt. So when God says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now, he's making a play here. And his point is, if you go back into Old Testament history, there were specific rules. You were not supposed to bring non-Israelites, people who were not outside the covenant community, into the temple. It would ruin the service that goes on there. And his point is, now you're the temple, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do not have any influences or relationships in your life. That will ruin your ministry and service. That will ruin that ministry of you walking as a children of light in this world and it's so easy for that to happen, we don't even notice it sometimes. The journey into Babylon can be much easier than we think. We might just feel that we need to nip in quickly to grab something, nip in to get out. We might think we're strong enough to be able to resist the influences. At first it doesn't seem so bad, ultimately that never really ends well. Sometimes we look at people who we know started off very well and we look at them and we say how did they end up there? chances are it was step by step. I'm gonna share you again another example I shared on that Wednesday night with the character of Lot because I think it illustrates so well what this the damage and danger of what this can do. If you remember the story right back in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Lot and Lot his nephew were together. They both had loads of flocks. They were both wealthy sheep herders at that time and like it was in those days and eventually they got too large to be sharing the same piece of property and they said, well, let's split up together. And Lot went up to the hill. He looked over a bit of land. He said, I like that area over there. And he headed and he camped near a city called Sodom. He didn't go into Sodom at this point. It says specifically in the text that he went near Sodom, even though he knew Sodom was renowned for its wickedness at this time on the earth. And then as you carry on with this narrative, I want you to notice the subtle progression here. Thinking about how easy it is to slip into these things. The next time we read of, of Lot, it's chapter 14 and it says verse 12, they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. You see he went near Sodom, stayed there for a bit and then he ends up living in Sodom and at this point in the narrative the people of Sodom were actually attacked by a a group of kings who lived nearby them, and they took a load of people, slaves, and Lot was included in that. And here's the other side that we've also seen in Revelation. Come out of Babylon, it says, lest you'll be caught up in the judgement that's about to come on her. This is exactly what Lot happened. He went near Sodom, he went into Sodom, and then he got caught up in the troubles that were going to come to Sodom. However, the Lord is merciful to him because he's of the family of Abraham. And God mercifully sent a way out, if you remember, it was Uncle Abraham that came to the rescue and defeated those people and re got Lot back basically. And at this point you might think with such a near miss of being a slave in a foreign nation being taken captive, he might think I need to stop and readdress my life, I need to figure out what is going on, why was I even there in the first place? This could have been avoided. But he didn't do that. And the chances are, you see, he'd already built his life in Sodom. He was living there, he had roots there, he had ties there, he'd probably built, he had his house there, he had his family there. He was out of danger but he wanted to go back to Sodom and for me I just see us all over that with the way that we do that. Often we'll cry out to the Lord when something is wrong in our life, when we're feeling very down but then as soon as the storm has passed so to speak, it's business as usual and we're back doing the things that we do. This is what we see with Lot. He wasn't living in Sodom to try and be a godly influence. That's another line that you'll often hear. I want to be there so I can witness to those. Unfortunately, as while that may be well-intentioned, it doesn't usually work that way. But he wanted to live here, I believe, because he loved it there and he had ambition to prosper there. The next time we see him in the narrative is Genesis chapter 19. And it says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now notice the progression here now. He was living in Sodom, to sit in the gate in the ancient Near East meant that you were one of the elders of the city. The gate of the city, the walls, the walled cities was where the council meetings of ancient cities would take place. It was a place of authority. He had ambition to prosper in Sodom. He rose up through the, la- the ranks to the top and if you can imagine the sort of relationships he must have had to make to get to that position, of this powerful industrial city at this time. He was a leading politician. And this is where it gets interesting. The Lord sent these angels to really tell him what is gonna happen. Again, the Lord's mercy, just like he's doing in Babylon now. Remember, we've had the angel telling us what's gonna happen, the plea for people to come out. This is kind of what's being pictured here with Lot. He sent his angels, and it seems that Lot kind of got the message. And the point I want to hone in on now is that Lot then tried to warn his son-in-law About the coming judgment. It's a very interesting text in verse 14. It says Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said up get out of this place the Lord's going to destroy the city and then it says but he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. They thought he was joking. Now why? You, Lot, are talking to us about the Lord, a holy Lord of judgment. You're telling us this is true. They thought that was funny, they thought that was something to laugh about and I've seen this many times, if you've been in church any amount of time you've probably seen this, often we think that if we do the same things as the world, If we show that we can be comfortable in Sodom, yet at the same time think we are testifying to a greater reality and a greater world, when we do finally turn round and say something about the Lord to them, a Lord who is holy, who is righteous, a Lord who is loving, a Lord who lays down his life for himself, but a Lord who will ultimately one day judge evil, it appears to the world as if we are joking. They would say, if that were true, well then you wouldn't be living here in Sodom and that is the idea here and that is a very important lesson. I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at when he says, be wise, do not walk as the unwise, walking in darkness. This is the point. This is what Paul was arguing to the Corinthians, this is what the prophets were saying to the nation of Israel, this is what John is saying I believe here to his people in this future time, come out of her my people. He goes on in Revelation again now, so that you will not participate in her sins, as in, you will be influenced by that environment and then you will receive the plagues, the judgement, you will get caught up in the judgement that you were not supposed to be there for. Do not get caught up in them or else you will be caught up in the judgement, which in our time in Revelation that we're reading is about to come very, very shortly. Now I find that, like that, that scares me a little bit when I read passages like that because it. It's easy to come to church every Sunday, isn't it? It's easy to fall into the pattern of Christianity, to think what we're doing is just religion in some respects. We know theoretically it's not, but it's easy to fall into that trap. But when we read passages like this, we have to come to the very real conclusion that ultimately, There is evil in this world. There is a conquering king who is coming. We are called, set apart to be the ones that testify to the light as children of light. It is a privilege, a responsibility, something we do not deserve. We cannot earn something that is gifted to us purely by the work of ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that is it and that's why we do it because we know ultimately it testifies to a reality that one day will fill this earth and everyone will see and there will be no more Babylon. Let's read what happens, verse six back in Revelation. Pay her back even as she has paid and give her back to a double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Babylon will get what she deserves. You remember I shared with you a few things a while back, if you might think this sounds harsh, about the evil that Babylon does. You know, you read those things in the world that make your, your, your stomach churn, don't they? That like really you cannot believe so, so much happens in the world. I believe this sort of thing is going on rampant at this time in the world, its future. Babylon gets what she deserves. In fact, it says that she will get double what she deserves. This is an interesting fact most people miss. It's based on an Old Testament law called the law of restitution. If a thief stole something from someone, he had to pay it back double. That was an Old Testament law. And this gives us an indication maybe of how Babylon became so wealthy. We read those descriptions, the golden cup, the scarlet, all these luxuries that they have, this wealthy place. How did they get that wealth? It may be that it was by theft that that wealth came about. This is, I believe remember we're talking about a government, a system and an economic system here and a political system. This is not theft by ski masks and robbery. This is more likely As we've seen with the mark of the beast and buying and selling, this is probably theft by tax, inflation, devaluing currency, assets, taking control of infrastructure through regulation. Really the oldest trick in the book for dictatorships. I don't see any reason why the beast would be any different. And most of you can probably see. Babylon is here and it is coming just as John warned us it would. It says Babylon glorified herself and lived sensuously. I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow and I will never see mourning. She thought she was untouchable. She thought she was above the people, above the law. No rules apply to her. She was the queen, ruling over the kings of the earth. This global law-making state that dictates to everyone else what they can and cannot do at this time. She's really thrown off mankind at this point, has thrown off any semblance of self-control and self-restraint. Remember the church is gone, the restrainer is gone. Evil is having its final hurrah here. Sinners indulge in wild sensual living. We talked about that with some of these old things. Just like Babylon of old, do you remember when Babylon of old, the historical Babylon got its warning? The famous passage, the writing on the wall. What were they doing at that exact moment when judgment was about to come when the Persian army was already in the gates in the city? They were partying, weren't they? They were up with Nebuchadnezzar, they'd gone and got the temple vessels and they were having having a, a party up there. They were so confident that they were set apart away, they couldn't be touched by any of this stuff. Little did they know judgment was already, had already begun in their city. I see a very similar thing happening here. It says, for this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning and famine, she will be burned up for the Lord who judges is strong. In one day she will be judged, the Lord is strong. It may appear at this point, it may even appear now in our world that evil is rising, that power, that we have no power, that they have power, that is a lie. We have all the power, we don't have it, Jesus has it basically. All the power is his, the Lord will bring it down in an instant. Now Let's just read the next big chunk so we get through this whole chapter. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls and fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and the wine and olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, and cargoes of horses, chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance from the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste every shipmaster, every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now we see the world's response to this destruction. They weep, they lament because she is gone. Babylon is gone. And you can see this often enough in sort of prefigure how this goes in the world today. When the means of people's pleasure are taken away from them, they weep and they lament. And I also find it very interesting the two groups of people we have mentioned here, kings and merchants. We me put that into today's language, political leaders and business leaders remember a few weeks back we did a study on globalism and the book of Revelation and I introduced you to that group called the World Economic Forum. Just to remind you their website, the forum engages the foremost political, business, cultural and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. They are a group basically of the richest merchants, corporations and businessmen in the world and this is how they facilitate their interaction with governments around the world. We see this in the world today. In many places actually the merchants are more powerful than the elected officials. The two work together, they profit from their partnerships and they benefit themselves and such relationships usually move towards total government and corporation control of assets, wealth and production. Historically that's the way I believe the Bible teaches that will be future and I hope you can see we are well on the way to that in our world today. This is pretty much exactly what is happening right before our eyes. The list here of all these items, they are luxurious items of the day. Whether or not they are analogous to what will be considered luxury items, I'm not a lot of people make big issues that I'm not particularly fussed about that. What I think you want to emphasise is that the point is that this city is a commercial centre for trade of many many sorts and it probably owns most of the wealth of the world at this time. Yet it is worth noting one last particular thing that they trade, slaves and human lives. Now many people read this and they say you see this had to be fulfilled in the in the first century with the Roman Empire, 60% of the Roman Empire were consisted of slaves, that's true. However, We've already seen the leaders of the world, a mix of politics and trade moving in that direction. I don't see any reason why this has to be taken as historic. If you don't know, human trafficking is the fastest growing and second largest trade in the world today. And within 10 years, it will probably be the largest. 150 billion pound industry a year, over 27 million people caught up in that in some way or another as we speak today. And that's now, it's growing. And remember, we're still at a time when there is restraint on this world. The church is still here, the restrainer is still restraining evil. We're talking about a future time when all that is gone and the Antichrist is literally ruling the world at this time. So I don't see any reason to not take that as being a continuation and the most graphic demonstration of what evil really does. As it always goes back to that point, men are made in the image of God, Satan hates that. That's why we see the gravest crimes go against people who are made in the image of God. It's always that way on this world. Now the world, the earth dwellers, those who love and have chosen the darkness, they've chosen the pleasure and the pursuits of Babylon, the luxurious and the sensuous living, they weep and they mourn at her destruction. They chose this over their own soul and now in one day, in an instance, they have to see it go, it is destroyed, and they are left with nothing but the reality that they are on the wrong side. That is the reality that they have at this moment, because very, very shortly, the true king is going to break through those clouds and come and they've got nothing left now. And again, as I read this, and I know we're talking of a future time, but it makes me think very seriously, what should we be doing with our lives at this time? Because do we want to end up like those merchants in Babylon? One day it's all going to go none of it's going to benefit us, none of it's going to take, take, we can't take any of it with us as we often hear it said. All that will remain is what is going into the Lord's Kingdom. Therefore, as ambassadors and children and citizens of that Kingdom, we must make sure our investments are in the right bank, if I put it like that, if you know what I mean, we are building in to that future. What is it we pursue? What is it we long for? What is it we search out? Are we maybe a little too comfortable living in light of Sodom? Are we living near the mountains of Sodom, looking over into it? We need to be very careful when we do because I'm sure all of us know, before we know it, we might well be in Sodom. The Lord will probably call us out as he does. Come out of her, my people. Flee from Babylon. Lot, get out of there. Abraham, get out of there. He did it to many, many people. Moses, get out of there. Often he'd take them into the wilderness, take them through hard times before, but that is the reality. And I think when we think like that, It gives us a real real understanding to search out what it is God has promised for us in this world. Because if we think that the pleasures of Babylon can for a second compare to the reality that awaits us in Christ's kingdom, we are deluded. Above all men on this world we are deluded. You see that Babylon, they loved the gold, the merchants, the pearls, the precious stones. In a couple of chapters we're going to read that gold is so unworthy of anything that you walk on it on the street in Christ's kingdom. These are things he created with the word of his mouth but yet this is what the world treasures. That is a perspective we need to keep as we're in this world. Rejoice over her. Verse 20 now. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets because God has pronounced judgments for you against her. Now we see the contrast. Those ones who are weeping and mourning and now we see those in heaven, the saints, the apostles, the prophets, those who have denied themselves and followed the king in this age, And in this age, when we follow Jesus, we're following a king who ultimately does not have his throne yet. He has no glory yet on this world. There's no palace, there's no renown. All he had was a cross and a grave. He was despised, rejected of men. Yet, those who loved him were loyal to him. We will be the ones, those people will be the ones that come with him when he comes in all his glory. will be there at the inauguration of his kingdom and will be there to witness The ultimate demise of Babylon and evil on this world. We will see him in the radiance, the full beauty and majesty and glory of the Lord. That will supersede anything that our flesh, our human nature might desire or want or think is what we should pursue in this world. Verse 21, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. The sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all those who have been slain on the earth. This is a graphic final demonstration of the ultimate fate of Babylon, the one who led so many into sin and away from God, a millstone cast around its neck and into the sea. And you might recognize that phrase, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember Jesus used the same analogy. If you make one of these little ones who is following me stumble, you're better to have a millstone cast into your neck and thrown into the sea. When you, when you put a stone around something, you put it into sea, you want it to disappear forever. Swimming with the fishes, they say, don't we? Concrete boots, those sorts of things. It's the same principle here. That's how you get rid of something forever. What this is basically saying, Babylon, everything that comes from it is going to be destroyed forever. And this is the imagery that we have going on here. This is the imagery that Jesus was saying about those who would cause believers to stumble in that regard. So here we have the final demise of Babylon, the system of the beast, Antichrist's final attempt to be king on this world, it's all over destroyed in one hour because the Lord is strong, the Antichrist is not. All that remains at this point now for them is to look up and see the return of the king and to realise that they are on the wrong side. The beast and his followers knowing that now take their final stand their city, their economy, their government, their trade, their assets, their wealth is destroyed. Whatever they have left, they now turn to fight the coming King. We shall see that in a little bit. But, make no mistake, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is about to break forth onto this earth at this time. The next chapter that we will study, Revelation chapter 19, is probably the most awesome chapter really in many ways in the entire Bible. That is the second coming of Christ. Everything that we've been building up to in Revelation now is about to come to fulfillment. He is about to come, and no one will stand except those who are born into his kingdom. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.